นโมทัสสะบกวัตโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบกวัตโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบกวัตโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนมัสสะWatch your mind and don't make a problem out of things. And we can all say these things, but probably all of us are also familiar with how difficult it can be to let go of things. Mm. Well, at least it seems to me it didn't take a lot of investigation to to establish to become establishing a very strong faith in the Buddha's teaching that that the things that, that what causes us to suffer is clinging. Life is changing. Everything's always changing. Everything's in a state of flux. There is nothing that is fixed. The only thing that is fixed in all existence is the law of change. And everything else is is changing the whole time. Everything is unstable, and and if we grasp at things, whatever it is, altruistic ideas and and, and inspiring aspirations. If we grasp at them, then we we produce a certain level of stress and feelings. We have beautiful feelings, you know, even like love. Parents who've got children, you just love your children, and and you just love them so much that fourteen or fifteen, they tell you to go to hell because your love wasn't free flowing. Open-hearted relationship between two beings. It, was, it turned into a form of grasping. The, the feelings that are associated with love are very pleasant and very beautiful. And if we're not clear, then we end up grasping the pleasure, and we create a problem out of pleasure. We create a problem out of pleasure, and we create a problem out of pain. And you don't even have to meditate to see that. In little reflection, you can realize how how true that is. And so. It's. Uh, I think myself, it, it didn't take much to get inspired in the path of practice of letting go. And when I came across uh, my teacher Ajahn Chah in Thailand and heard how often he would talk about letting go, uh, I was immediately sold. Yeah, I thought this is uh, this is a wise man, and and you could see it in his being that he knew, he knew how to let go. He had this wonderful agility to him where. One of the most inspiring things I, saw, I knew about Ajahn Chah was his ability to adjust from one situation to another without any resistance, because he knew how to let go. He wasn't holding on. He could be with somebody, totally focused. Some some local politician came to see him and presenting his problems, and Ajahn Chah would be there listening to him and telling him to keep his moral precepts and. Stop playing around with 
lottery numbers or whatever he was getting up to. Anyway, he'd be really there focused for him. And then somebody else would turn up, some junior monk would come in with a problem and uh, about some obscure, refined point of the discipline. And Ajahn Chah was right there for that. And, and then the builders would turn up with the builders. He spent years and years and years building this huge, big temple in the middle of his monastery dedicated to his mother. Not only did he want to build the temple, but first he wanted to build a hill to put the temple on top of. And it was quite a complicated structure. And so the builders were always coming with problems. And so the builders would turn up and he'd be right there with the builders. And how do you have that kind of agility? How can you be fully present moment by moment with these different uh, types of uh, requirements for your attention? Well, only if you know how to let go. So certainly that was a great inspiration for me. And even before I could speak his language, even before I could speak Thai, somebody was saying to me the other day, how did you get on living in Thailand? You know, could you speak Thai? Could Ajahn Chah speak English? No, he couldn't speak English. Well, all he could say was, do you like Satiki lice? And, um, but uh, that was the only English that he knew. And, and I, for the first few years, I didn't know any Thai. But when you meet somebody who really knows how to be present moment by moment by moment, there's a vibrancy, there's an aliveness. There's something that you can trust, I find, in, in, in being around such a person. So uh, whether it's reach, seeing a person or whether it's through our own life struggles with the things that we have to deal with in our own minds or whether it's in meditation, you decide that you want to uh, get to know what it's like to have a peaceful mind. It's quite an attractive idea and if you've been, you know, somehow or other you've been inspired and through a book or through meeting somebody, whatever. So you set about trying to make your mind peaceful. So, okay, the teaching says just watch, and watch the breath. No big deal, really, is it? Just watch your breath. It says, okay, there's the breath, watch your breath. And within seconds you're thinking about what happened yesterday or what's going to happen tomorrow. And then the teacher says, just let go and don't make a problem out of it, just come back and say, don't make a problem out of it. What do you mean, don't make a problem out of it? I mean, I just, I mean all these years I've been practicing meditation and I just, I, feel like I should be like this, I should be like that. So, said, well, just let go of the judging mind. Don't just let go. Well, it's very easy to say, just let go. And it's not, it's not so easy to let go. And so, although this is the teaching that clinging, grasping causes suffering, and letting go of that false relationship of trying to make ourselves secure by grasping onto things that are insecure, you know, even though that's what's called for, we need to be very discerning, very very um, creative in how we go about it. Mm. And somebody else came to see me the other day, and they they've been turned out they've been meditating for years and doing this one meditation technique. This guy went on a meditation retreat years and years ago and he did a, I think it's a 10-day retreat and they got to sit for something like 12 hours a day, no walking meditation, 12 hours, hour-long sittings and nearly killed himself, nearly broke his knees in the process but really made himself do it and, and so doing it he had this amazing experience, this wonderful life-transforming experience after the retreat. His mind was so so peaceful and and so beautiful, and just for weeks afterwards, it's just walking around, the mind was so lovely, and 
So for years since then, he's been hammering away at this meditation technique, trying to have the same experience. Although he's not actually on retreat, he's not on a 10-day retreat having somebody encouraging him to do this practice. He's actually off somewhere else doing something quite busy and in a very quite active situation. So he's in a very different situation, doing something very different, but he's still hammering away at this meditation technique. And, and his mind is full of the feeling of uncertainty. And I just, I'm just not sure if I'm doing the right thing. And this poor man has been suffering from the fear of uncertainty for years and years. But the only way he has of dealing with it is coming back to the meditation technique and just applying this technique over and over again with will, hoping that somehow eventually one day this fear of uncertainty is going to fall away. And I said to him, I said, well, what happens when you turn your attention and, and look at the feeling of fear of uncertainty? And he said, Oh, is this another technique? Is this a different technique? I said, well, well, it's not really a technique. I mean, this is this is just like having a relationship. You know, when you have a relationship with somebody. Relationship with somebody. You don't look up a manual and say, "Well, we've had dinner. What do we do now? We go for a walk and then we have a talk." I mean, when you have a relationship with somebody, you just—it's natural, isn't it? You know how to relate to people and you want to get to know somebody. If you meet somebody you want to get to know, I mean, it's natural. You just get to know them, right? Well, it's the same with our hearts. If we're engaging in getting to know our own hearts and minds, we've got to be creative, we've got to trust ourselves and, and allow ourselves to, to uh, use our instinct and our intuition to how to do these things. And so I said, well, if you want to call it a technique, you can, but actually it's just being a little bit more relaxed with your attention. If something is continually hounding you, well, sometimes you do have to turn and, and inquire. So in learning how to let go, we do have to be very creative. And uh, we can't just always follow one path. And, and uh, creativity is, is, is it, it, it's actually perfectly natural to us. And not, not just humans, all animals, all beings are creative. It's one of the most wonderful things about being alive is our creativity. And all the possibilities that uh, if we engage in our creativity and exercise it. I don't know if you read that story the other day about those sheep in Yorkshire. Did you, I don't know how, if, you really, if you knew how intelligent Yorkshire sheep are. I mean, some, some sheep are intelligent and some sheep are superior. And the Yorkshire sheep, there's a lot of things about Yorkshire that are really superior, I've been told, once or twice. <laughs> and uh, the sheep in Yorkshire are amazing. You know, they, they have cattle grids to protect their garden. I don't know if you saw this story. These people, you know, this, these people live out in the countryside like people like us. You know, we like to live in the countryside. And if you've got a nice garden like we have, or you've got a nice vegetable patch like in this article, these people grew lettuces and silver beet and cabbages and so on. And, but the sheep that were wandering on the moor used to just come in and eat up their, their patch, their garden patch. So they put in a cattle grid. That's a sensible thing to do. Protect. You've got to protect your cabbages. Right? You know, the sheep did. This lady, she described what they did. What they do is they go and they lie down by the cattle group, curl their feet up, and then they roll over. Yeah, three metres. Boom, 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 boom. And then they get in, so they go over and they have a really nice lunch, have a chat with each other, and they come back and roll up the legs and roll back again and then turn around and smile. <laughs> They're really creative sheep. Now, if sheep can be that creative, we can be a lot more creative. And we do have to be creative. 
in our practice. Ajahn Chah used to quote one of his teachers who used to say that when the distractions come to us in meditation, you've got to be discerning, you've got to see. If they come high, you go low. If they come low, you go high. And we need to exercise this watchfulness in practice, not just simplistically, mechanically hammering away at a technique, hoping that it's going to do the job for us. And sometimes we, we do pick up religion with that kind of rather um, initial effort where we just you know hope that well we just do this this and this and then that'll happen like they teach you in Sunday school just do this this and this and when you die everything will be okay now that's a very simplistic solution to life life is not like that actually it's uh, one of the characteristics that those who look into fundamentalism identify that um, fundamentalist organizations can be identified by you know, people who come out with simplistic solutions to complex situations. Life is complex. But if you really narrow your attention and come up with some simplistic solution, you can, you can get a lot of energy from that. You can be really passionate. You, see, you must have seen whether it's political fundamentalists or religious fundamentalists or ecological fundamentalists tremendous energy and enthusiasm and conviction and power and 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 yet you try and have a rationed you know reasonable conversation with them and say well what about this and there's no way there's no room for what about this there's one way baby i mean there's one way and that's it nothing else and you can be inspired by that enthusiasm you say well maybe gee, I'm, I'm not so sure about things really maybe maybe they're right because they're obviously sure well, we need to be very cautious about that. Just because somebody sounds sure and enthusiastic doesn't mean to say that it's right. And this is something really worth being very cautious about. We, we maybe feel a bit wishy-washy and say, well, you know, I'm not sure and you know, I'd like to consider this. And say, well, that's okay. You know, just to have a broad mind and an open mind and and to really be willing to take different approaches to complex problems, not just to settle for an initial approach and not just to hammer away at, at, at some technique that we got taught years ago or that we read in a book. I was talking about this meditation technique that some of you will have heard uh, listening to the sound of silence that, that some people use. It's um, referred to, I think, in the, the Sufi tradition as as listening to the sound of a thousand silver butterflies. And uh, there's this high-pitched frequency sound that you can hear in your head. Not tinnitus, which is a serious, unpleasant, and unfortunate condition, but if you train your attention, you can listen inwardly to this gorgeous high-pitched frequency ringing sound that is just so lovely. And you can train your attention to focus on that. And it can be very, very skillful, especially for us, head freaks in the West who just love thinking. We just love thinking. And if we're asked to come out of our head and even down to our nose, that's already, you know, you already feel like we've got culture shock. Just, we're so happily up here. You know, and then talk about coming down to the heart or the belly. I mean, I talk to a lot of men in meditation. Women are easier, but men, you get them to feel? And they say, what do you mean feel? How do you mean feel? And they want an explanation for what it means to feel. Now, I'm not saying all men, so please don't feel put down here. But 
for a lot of blokes, if you ask them to feel, how do you feel it? You know, how does that feel when you you feel unsure? Say, well, what do you mean feel? Well, this happened in my past, and they have said, no, 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 not what, but how. Well, to get some people to come out of their heads and down to into the body, into the heart, into their guts, and really feel something is very difficult because they're so used to being up on the head, which is uh, understandable given the kind of education that we've had. However, to learn to disengage from this obsession with being identified with our thinking mind, listening to the sound of silence can be very skillful. It's like a background sound that's there all the time. And you can, even while I'm talking, I can hear this sound of silence. And, and it gives you a frame of reference, which helps you learn to see that thinking is just another thing that arises and ceasing, ceases. It's not there all the time. You know, we can, in other words, we can easily come, we can learn to come off the addiction to the conceptualizing mind. Now, that's a very important thing to be able to do. And, but I've, I know some people, you explain this to them, say, oh, there's nothing about that in the scriptures. Buddha didn't mention the sound of silence, so uh, I'm not going to do it. Well, that, that's also another mistake, to think that just because it's not recorded in Pali, not recorded in the books, that, that it's not Buddhist teaching or it's not going to work. Actually, with the Buddha, says anything that accords with the Noble Eightfold Path is Dhamma. Anything that helps us let go, mindfully and skillfully, is right practice. So we do need to be quite uh, dexterous, agile and creative in our practice. Now, that, having said that, it doesn't mean to say that every time a distraction comes along in meditation, we turn around and we start having, trying to engage it and investigate it and analyse it and, and, in effect, make a problem out of it. Because it's true, there are some things that happen, some distractions, some tendencies arise in the mind that all you've got to do is just look away and they disappear. There are some such tendencies. You're focusing on the breath or the sound of silence or cultivating the theme of loving kindness, whatever your meditation object is, and, and then up comes some idea of what's going to happen in the future and you see it and you just come straight back to the meditation object. And then maybe it happens a second time and you come back to the meditation object. And then it's gone. That's it. We don't have to actually engage it. We don't have to investigate it. We don't have to analyze it. Those kind of tendencies don't have a lot of energy in them. Then there are other tendencies, other distractive tendencies that arise in meditation. Obsessive thoughts. Could be pleasure, could be pain. It's interesting actually that Often pleasure is easier to let go of for some reason. It's strange, isn't it? I mean, why, you'd think you'd want to let go of pain, wouldn't you? I don't know why that is. It's strange, isn't it? I mean, painful memories. Something's already finished and gone ages ago, and yet we keep going back to it and thinking about it and dwelling on it. What do we do that for? And then there's something beautiful like going on holiday or something in the future. Say, oh, I shouldn't be thinking about that. So let go. So you let go and it's gone. That's not always the case. Sometimes it's a matter of characteristics. Sometimes people have different dispositions. Some people, pleasure obsesses their mind and, and they, they, uh, they can't stop thinking of pleasant things. And Something that might start off being pleasant to think about can become excruciatingly painful. 
Some of you will have heard me talk before about my, my fantasies in my early years of meditation of, of uh, being an architect. I always wanted to be an architect. Well, not always, but for a lot of my early life, I, I wanted to be an architect. And, and then when I was living in the forest in Australia, I got obsessed with these fantasies of building tree houses. And, and still even now I get a little excited at the thought of bu- building a house in the tree. Just, I don't know what it is. It's just something about being up there in the trees and these beautiful living, being part of this living organism. Trees are so beautiful. I confess actually I prefer trees to people. And that's probably why I'm a monk. <laughs> but you know, to build, to live in a tree is, is such a beautiful thing. And so in my meditation I would... Um, let my mind wander and I would start designing these shapes and the floor there and a level over there and a, a window there and it was delicious, a delicious fantasy. And, and when you start to get a little deeper in meditation, delicious fantasies become even more delicious. They become really intoxicatingly delicious to the point where you get hooked on them. And I did, I got stuck with these fantasies. and. It, it was it was excruciating, and um, drove me spare really. I really I just couldn't let go of something that started out being very pleasant, and very beautiful. Actually, through clinging, I couldn't help myself. The tendency to cling was so deep and so strong that I couldn't help but grasp at these fantasies and got caught up in the energy of desire. And likewise, of course, with pain, there's, uh, there's some painful memories of something that somebody did to you years ago, some humiliation that happened. They might even be dead by now. They might even be dead, completely gone. You know, reborn as something or other. Don't like to think what they got reborn as. <laughs> and here you are, still dwelling on this thought of, you know, they said this and, and it was so cruel. After all I'd done for them, how could they do that to me? How could they do that? <laughs> They're dead and gone. <laughs> Maybe you even went to their funeral and you're still thinking, yeah, yeah, several years ago. Uh, well, what? And you say, come back to the breath. Come back to the breath. <laughs> trying to force this thought, and this is what, this is what we do, and this is what some people do, and trying to use will to grasp the technique, to grasp the meditation object, to get rid of and I do, I hear people say, no matter how hard I try, I can't get rid of that memory. Well, if we hear such thoughts in our mind, and say, well, you know, then maybe we better just take another look at it, get a little bit more creative, be a bit more sensible, basically. What are you trying to get rid of all this energy for? This is energy. You don't want to get rid of your energy. The fact that your energy is manifesting in this painful way means you need to look at it but you don't want to get rid of your energy. So what we can do is actually, for a while, just let go of the meditation object and turn around and, and look at it and say, well, what is this pain? Why am I, what am I getting off on? What am I getting out of? What am I getting out of holding on to this pain? And if we ask the question carefully, very carefully, skillfully, then we start to hear answers. And say, we start to feel answers and say, well, you're getting a, a sense of being righteous. You know, you're really feeling really sorry for yourself because you were right and they were wrong. You're winning. You were the winner and they were the loser. They were bad and you were good. 
That's what you're getting out of it. Well, that's interesting. It's not very beautiful, is it? But you see it when you see it for yourself. When you really see it for yourself, well, then letting go happens. So sometimes letting go happens because we just turn the mind away from it. We just choose to not look at it. Just choose to not look at it, and then letting go happens. Sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes we need to get creative, like those sheep in Yorkshire, and and actually find some other way of dealing with the obstruction, this distraction. And and sometimes that does mean you know, turn, letting go of the meditation object, turning to it, and, and asking some questions. What's really going on here? And and also, you know, like really not just intellectual questions, but feeling questions. Like, you see, what what does it feel like to be dwelling on on fantasies of the future? What does it feel like in the body? You know, what does it feel like to be worrying? What does worry feel like? How many times have we worried about something, and then it turned out that it was a completely pointless worry? Now there's concern, there's wise concern and wise preparation and, and so on, we all know that, but there's also pointless worry. And we need to be able to differentiate and see what's pointless worry and what's actual skillful, careful preparation. And if we're not if we're not aware of the difference, well then we can mistake them and we can think that we're being skillful and mindful and so on. We're actually basically just indulging in worry. And and what's the point of worry? Well, if you identify something as worry, say, actually, that's really pointless. There's absolutely nothing I can do about that. There's no point in worrying. So just let go. But then you can't let go. Well, that, if we can't let go, we need to look at it. And if we look at it in the right way and feel, what, for instance, what does it feel like to worry? I mean, it, it's, it's just so unpleasant to worry. You know, it's interesting. I don't know about you. Maybe I'm just a bit odd. But... I, there was a time in my life when I really thought worrying was, was a, a good thing to do. I thought somehow I was virtuous by worrying about things. Whatever the explanation is, there was the, it, wasn't, it was only when I saw, only when I actually came to see for myself that worrying is something I'm doing and I'm not getting anything out of it. I'm actually losing by worrying. Now when we see, when we really see that, we really see, I'm losing out by worrying. I'm not getting anything out of it. Up until that point, I thought I was getting something out of worrying. I thought I was gaining by worrying. The same with anger. You know, sometimes you can be dwelling on anger. That guy is really a, a real creep. And you start wishing horrible things for somebody and you can be dwelling on it. And, and you know, it's interesting. A part of the mind thinks you're getting something out of it. Now, that guy, whoever he is, might be off on the beach having a nice time and enjoying himself. Yeah. You know, having a wonderful time, and you're the one that's sitting there miserable, but you don't even know it. And now, if we're skillful in meditation and agile and creative, then we can direct our attention in an inquiring way towards these distractions and look and and, and ask feeling questions. For instance, you know, what am I getting out of this? Until we learn to say, I'm not getting anything. I'm losing by being angry. I'm losing by by being greedy. I'm losing out. So, some distractions in practice, we, we, we can let go just by turning away from them. Just a choice. Just, just let go, and they've gone. Others, we need to turn our attention and look. And, and then there are, another, there are other distractions which the Buddha pointed out, is that actually at the time, you can't let go. 
there's too much energy invested in them. And he uses image, he said, of pushing your tongue up against the roof of the mouth. Not this gentle touching the roof of the mouth like I was saying. Sometimes there's so much energy and the distractive tendency is so strong and so passionate that if you're not really, really determined, the mind gets pulled off and into some horrible frightening or anxious or greedy or angry state of mind. And if you're in a state of subtlety of meditation, the consequences can be very, very unpleasant and can last for a very long time. So it's important that we also recognize through our creative involvement in meditation, not just our technician's approach to meditation, learning how to let go, is also important to recognize that before we can let go, sometimes we've really got to hang on. We've got to really learn to hang on tight. Yeah. It's like, I don't know if, you, if, you, if you've been surfing or skiing or some such or horse riding. If you're just cantering along or you've just got a little gentle swell or a nice smooth slope, whatever, you can have a fairly relaxed relationship with your board or with the horse or whatever. But if you've really got some energy going, if you've really got some momentum, if you're on a big wave or you're on a good slope, or the horse is really moving, you know, you're not just having a relaxed relationship. You're, you're really there, holding on to the reins, really got your feet firmly placed on your board or whatever it is. And that holding on is important to survive the momentum. Well, likewise in meditation, sometimes the passions flare up and there's so much energy involved in the thing that we're not, we're not, you know, we, we've got to let go of our idea of letting go. And just for this period right now, this is this kind of a distraction, this is this kind of a tendency of mine. Just got to hold on tight, hold on tight for now. Just survive. Just stay with the meditation object, stay with the body posture. Develop, as I said, the, the points of you know, body posture awareness. If we develop these, these points, the top of the head, the tongue, the shoulders, the chest, the the belly and the, and the butt, if we develop an awareness of these points, then when the energy does come up in meditation, we can just bring up the image and go straight back to them and then come into the body and hold on to this body awareness. And if we don't, well, as I say, we, we can end up creating a lot of very unhelpful, unskillful karma and there can be consequences. If we come across such a, a tendency and if we're serious about practice and we're consistent and sooner or later it will come to all of us, that's such kind of energetic distractions and we do succeed in surviving without letting go of our meditation object, hold on to the meditation objects, stay in the body. When such distractions come along, well then the practice means that we have to put time aside later on and take a more gradual approach uh, realizing well, letting go will happen when the conditions are right. And one of the supportive conditions for letting go in such a case is to prepare ourselves when we're not meditating. You just, you just sit in your armchair and, and rerun the program, you know, rerun what happened. Uh, it's not necessarily just a meditation, maybe it's a situation at work, maybe there's some character at work who just winds you up. I don't know if you have such people, I have such people, I just... Nobody here, nobody ever, nobody hears like that. Everybody here is an absolute sweetie pie. But there have been some characters here who just 
just can wind me up or could do in the past I don't know if they could these days but certainly they could and I know what it's like they don't have to save me yes my mother can still do it and it's not difficult on the phone even from the other side of the world just the tone of her voice she just has to say one thing like wife <laughs> when are you going to get a wife you know, that's all she has to say and I can just feel so annoyed and, uh, and before I know it I've said something really rude to my poor 84 year old mother living alone on the other side of the planet probably freezing cold in the winter and she was only trying to be nice <laughs> whatever, we know what it's like to have somebody who winds us up and if it happens and you keep blowing it and you, you know, just being disciplined and focused at the time is not enough well then, you know, to let go well then we do have to, when we're alone put time aside and sit down and go through it, just rerun it and say okay in this situation that happens that happens and then they do that and then I do this and just go through it again in other words we're preparing ourselves mentally so that the next time when we are in that situation this skillful reflection the skillful contemplation is a, is a means of quickening sati there's a better chance that mindfulness will be present at the moment when we're about to spew it out and some of our toxin out onto the world or some other poor undeserving person. Yeah. So it's important to recognize that there are these different types of distractions that come to us whether it's in our daily life activity or within our formal meditation. And before we can let go, we need to develop different types of skills. Sometimes it's just not paying attention to that, just withdrawing our attention and letting go happens. Other times we actually have to turn to it and investigate it. And then seeing it, seeing through it, seeing that we're losing out by grasping on it or seeing that it's pointless or whatever, then letting go happens. And then there are yet there are other tendencies which we just have to be very, very patient with and be willing to give them time and to prepare ourselves, to rerun them, to and as yeah, to be really very, very patient. Just because some meditation technique or some skillful application of mental effort works in some situation at some stage of practice doesn't mean to say it's always going to work at every stage of practice with every tendency of mind. That again is a simplistic and rather lazy attitude. You know, just because it works in this situation doesn't mean to say it's going to work in another situation. So we can prepare ourselves for this and, and be ready for the different types of distractions and the challenge of learning to let go on all levels, and all dimensions of our being, if we have this kind of creative interest in practice and not just relating to spiritual life as some sort of guarantee or some sort of uh, technique. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Oh, uh-huh.